0: On today's morning show, you're going to be hearing a conversation that I recorded with bestselling author Jacqueline Tobin, who is probably best known for an earlier book titled Hidden in Plain View, A Secret Story of Quilts in the Underground Railroad, in which she suggested that some people involved in the Underground Railroad would actually use quilts and the display of quilts to communicate important coded messages to those they were trying to help. In the book we're going to be talking about today, From Midnight to Dawn, Jacqueline Tobin explores what amounted to the last leg of a very long journey for certain American slaves who would actually find their way from the South and from captivity all the way to communities in Canada. The book is titled From Midnight to Dawn, The Last Tracks of the Underground Railroad, a book published by Anchor. This is a conversation we recorded back in 2008. You mentioned, I think maybe in the preface or introduction to the book, that the story of these uh, communities in Canada, uh, made up almost entirely of former slaves, uh, is a story that has been almost completely untold, unknown in America. And you say until recently, even in Canada, A largely untold story for any particular reason
1: well certainly in America I think that we have a tendency to believe our history begins and ends at our borders in terms of Canadian history what I've um, come to learn is that black the black population in Canada is such a minority that many people don't even know that the that they have a long history in their country so I think those two, com- those two factors combined on both sides of this international border. Is
0: there any particular reason that you came to know about this?
1: Well, it was actually while I was doing research for Hidden in Plain View that I had a wonderful African-American gentleman um, call me up and say, have you ever been to Buxton? And I said, no, I don't know where Buxton is. And he said, well, it's in Ontario, Canada. And he said, you must go to Buxton. And I didn't make it there for several years. It was actually after publication of Hidden in Plain View that I finally got up there in the year 2000. And I went up there over Labor Day weekend when they were celebrating um, their welcoming home. It's called Homecoming, and it's a welcoming home of the descendants of all these former slaves that return to Buxton every year to celebrate their heritage. And I was so astounded by what I was learning about their heritage and their story that um, not only was I intrigued enough to want to write about it, but I've been going back there for seven years, every year on homecoming. I now consider it part of my homecoming as well.
0: Tell us again exactly where Buxton is.
1: If you cross over uh, into Canada from Detroit and you go over into Windsor, you can go straight up about 60 miles And you will hit the town of Chatham, and you will also, about 12 miles away, hit the small community of North Buxton. Buxton was actually divided into North and South Buxton, eventually. And you will then go, um, you can go to the west, and you can also come up upon the community of Dresden, which was once near the the black settlement called Dawn. Mm.
0: In fact, let's take this moment to explain the title of your book. I mean, this is just wonderful. Again, the title is From Midnight to Dawn. Tell our listeners exactly what that title means, besides the poetic beauty of it.
1: Well, I was very fortunate to come up with such a title. It just exactly fit, and it hit me when I was driving across the country one day, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is the title for the book. So that's always exciting to a writer when this happens. But in this case, Midnight was the code name for Detroit on the Underground Railroad. And dawn, as I just mentioned, was the name of a black settlement near the community now known as Dresden, um, that was settled by blacks up in Canada. So you have this um, poetic name, and which can, of course, be read on many levels from midnight Detroit across the international border into um, Canada towards dawn. Um, the advent of a new um, life, a new beginning, but also the name of a black settlement in Ontario.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. So let's uh, dig into some of the specifics of this story. First of all, briefly, we should talk about how the situation for slaves in America kind of changed over the course of, of, of the years. And, and and certain attitudes began changing certain laws began uh, to be uh, enacted fugitive laws and the like which really changed uh day-to-day life f- for slaves and and sort of reshaped their attitudes about it and and uh, and whether or not it uh, made sense for them to attempt an escape just talk a moment about that
1: well i think there were a couple of things and what i had to ask myself was why canada what how did canada end up becoming the the land of Canaan, if you will, for fugitive slaves. And in this case, what we find out is that um, Great Britain, um, Canada was then called British North America before the Civil War. Great Britain had already abolished slavery in 1833. Um, As a little side, um, we are this year, this month actually, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the ending of the slave trade in Britain. And for those of your listeners who want to find out more about that, I really urge them to go see this amazing movie out telling that story, and it's called Amazing Grace, which should be in your theaters right now, if I'm not mistaken. But
0: I think that's right.
1: Um, it tells the story of how these wealthy, influential men banded together and tried to end the slave trade. And it was absolutely revolutionary for them to do or even to consider such an idea, because historically slavery had always been a part of various cultures around the around the world. So, for them to actually force this issue and um, create this movement, this anti-slavery movement, was was huge. Um, but it began in Britain. Um, Britain, at the time, of course, was also the largest slave trading country. So, it doesn't it makes sense that there would be someone who would finally realize that this was was necessary to In such an institution. Um, In in the United States, though, what happened to eventually start pushing more and more blacks to try to reach freedom in Canada was about, I would suggest that it was the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. And this was an act that allowed slave owners to actually cross over into northern states, which had already abolished slavery for the most part, and go try to um, recapture those slaves that had escaped and bring them back to the South. And this was now provided by law. They now had the support of law to go after um, their former slaves. So it was no longer safe for blacks to just reach freedom in the North part of the U.S. They now had to actually cross an international boundary, that international border, and into what we now know as Canada, if they were to at least be supported by legislation that allowed them to live freely.
0: Hmm. I think we should mention something else, which is sort of a a sad (laughs) thing or regrettable thing to mention, but I think it's very helpful to our our really comprehensive understanding of this. You talk uh, in uh, the the chapter about uh, the community of uh, Wilberforce in, in, in Canada about what attitudes were like in Ohio. Uh, in the 1820s and 1830s uh, and, uh, and, and some of what you talk about resonates very powerfully with uh, attitudes with which we're living uh, very much today. Uh, tell us what life was like in Ohio in, 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 that, uh, in the early part of the 19th century and what it meant for, for the blacks who fled there.
1: Well, um, what you're referencing is the fact that Ohio had already abolished slavery in 1802 so you had this state that was, um, by law, a free state, but it's also bordering across the river with a slave state, the sla- state of Kentucky. So you had a lot of escaping slaves trying to reach freedom in Ohio. You saw a mass influx of, of blacks moving into the state of Ohio, uh, particularly the Cincinnati area. And what began happening is Ohio um, got very nervous about this mass influx of immigration. And as you suggested, um, many of the lessons that, that we discover, um, all the different trials and tribulations that were occurring up north with with these newly freed um, black people up in Canada, um, we there are similar lessons that are still going on with us today. So I find that fairly ironic, and you touched on that. But in, in Ohio, um, what the legislature... Uh, considered doing is they started um, enforcing black codes, which were very, very harsh restrictions put on even free black people in Ohio in order to try to control them, um, because they began to be so worried about the influx of these, of these fugitives into their state. Well, the free blacks um, in Ohio banded together, as um, it made sense to do so, and tried to protect themselves. And, but when they began seeing the writing on the wall that um, with the escalating pressure on them and escalating um, threats of violence, in, in some cases certainly violence, um, what they did is they sent um, certain delegates into Canada and said, um, is there land for us to buy up there that we could move and, and become a part of a free country and live freely without these threats up there? Hmm. Well, the people of Cincinnati Cincinnati didn't wait for the folks to come back. Um, they actually began the mob violence. And um, what happened is you saw um, an outflux of certain groups of blacks um, outside of the Cincinnati area. And some of those same folks ended up in Canada and began a community, uh, the first black settlement called Wilberforce.
0: You, you tell us about that, that terrible event, that mob violence uh, in 1829, in the summer, three days of violence uh, directed against the black community, and over 1,500 African Americans end up really fleeing for their lives. I'm so struck by a, a quote uh, you shared with us from a fugitive slave named John Malvin, and he writes, I thought upon coming to a free state like Ohio that I would find every door thrown open to receive me, but from the treatment I received by the people generally... I found it little better than Virginia. I mean, it's sobering indeed, and we just, we get so sad when we think about uh, a former slave freeing from the South, uh, fleeing from the South, hoping to find welcoming arms, and not finding that kind of welcome at all, at least in this pocket of the North.
1: Well, and you also find um, a new definition of freedom now being demanded by those formerly enslaved blacks who f- did find freedom, under the law at least, um, they were now demanding freedom of equality and opportunity. And this um, was something that uh, white people, even in the North, got very nervous about. Um, it was one thing to free formerly enslaved people, but to give them the same opportunities and the same um, equality under the law was something they hadn't quite accepted yet. So. Mm. Um, The whole definition of freedom was becoming more expansive at this same particular time.
0: That brings to mind another interesting shift uh, uh, mentioned in the same chapter, I think. You talk about how uh, African Americans in the early 19th century still very much thought of themselves as Africans, and that there was even a group, uh, I think, called the American Colonization Society, which really existed, uh, I think to 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 hopefully repatriate some of these uh, slaves or freed slaves back to Africa uh, before too long, that became a something that 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 most of the blacks here in North America weren't really interested in in being returned to the continent of Africa.
1: And what you're referring to here is um, the American Colonization Society, which was begun by people such as Henry Clay on one end of the spectrum and Bushrod Washington, a nephew of George Washington, um, thought that, well, maybe we can do away with this whole um, threatening issue of slavery if we just try to try to repatriate um, these Africans back to Africa. Well, they established the, the country of Liberia in 1817, Shortly after that, um, blacks started seeing themselves and identifying themselves more as Americans and did not want to be repatriated, Um, and so this whole huge issue of immigration versus being immigrated took on huge um, connotations in the black community, Hmm. and there were great arguments on both sides of the spectrum, some believing that, yes, it was it was good to go out and and, um, find a new place to live in another country, perhaps our motherland of Africa. Others said, no, I am American. I have been here now for, our families have been here for three or four generations, and I consider myself an American.
0: Well, and uh, in your book, uh, uh, a A Freed Slave in the North is quoted as saying, many of our fathers and some of us, have fought and bled for the liberty, independence, and peace which you now enjoy. Surely it would be ungenerous and unfeeling in you to deny us a humble and quiet grave in that country which gave us birth.
1: Absolutely. And again, I can go back into um, the first precedent we see of people moving into Canada actually began at, um, at the end of the American Revolution, and this began because the British, during that conflict that we were having with this country called Great Britain at the time, um, were, were using a military tactic. They were, they were saying, okay, um, if you escape, um, or they would actually free slaves of lands in the south that they would capture, and they said to these newly freed blacks, if you fight for us, we will give you your freedom. Well, this was a military tactic, and not necessarily on any um, belief in in, um, anti-slavery upon the British at that particular time, but they used it as a military tactic during the American Revolution to um, impact the manpower being used by especially the southern states. So we saw that tactic. Now, what's interesting about that tactic is a little side here is that Abraham Lincoln used that same tactic later on during the Civil War when he um, offered the Emancipation Proclamation, which did not, contrary to popular opinion, uh, free all the slaves. It actually only freed those slaves in those states that were threatening to secede from the Union. So it was more a military tactic at that point by Lincoln than it was um, benevolence on his part. Hmm.
0: That's one of the most interesting shades of this story, isn't it that sometimes uh maybe evil things were were done not always for for evil reasons, sometimes just out of plain fear and and sometimes good things were done for not the most uh uh impressive of of or laudable of of, of reasons I mean there is so much gray in the story of how uh the early United States of America lived with Institution of slavery.
1: Well, and again, I am, um, I keep coming back to this whole concept of these British abolitionists, these first British abolitionists abolitionists, like William Wilberforce, um, and beginning to understand just how revolutionary um, this concept of abolishing slavery really was at this time in history. Mm. Because Down through history, people cultures had always enslaved those that they had captured, um, and given them some form of indentured servitude or slavery. Um, But it wasn't really until um, we began bringing a particular group of people, and those were the black people from Africa, over into our into our North and South American and Caribbean. areas, that we began to see the color line in this whole issue of slavery. And that's when it took on a whole different tone than it used to.
0: I think uh, ahead of uh, us talking briefly about uh, a couple of these specific settlements, I think we should also maybe remind people of this thing called the Underground Railroad, Mm -hmm. which, of course, helped to facilitate uh, escaping blacks, escaping slaves, uh help them facilitated this journey from the South all the way to perhaps Canada for some of them that we should not think of the Underground Railroad as as more or less than than actually what it was I mean this is not what we sometimes tend to think of as a highly organized system I mean it was uh, loosely organized if it was organized really at all and yet it was the lifeline upon which so many slaves depended.
1: Well, and I, I'm glad you're trying to, to help redefine that because scholars in the past 20 years have certainly come to understand that this Underground Railroad, um, this idea of the Underground Railroad that certainly I grew up with, um, of these benevolent white people helping these poor slaves escape, that's what I call the romantic version of the Underground Railroad, when in essence um, I now try to speak of the Underground Railroad as a resistance movement that began when the first, uh, when the first um, chains were put on blacks in Africa, um, and resistance took many forms, and, um, and one of those forms was escape. And, again, contrary to popular opinion, they weren't just waiting on plantations, waiting to be saved by benevolent white people. Right.
0: You say when an Underground Railroad was laid on the paths first trod, By courageous forebears who had escaped without any white assistance, many of the conductors, uh, so-called conductors of that Underground Railroad, were free blacks. Uh, Elsewhere in the book, I think in the preface, you say, what has come to be known as the Underground Railroad was less an organized system than a corridor of subterfuge and chance. There was no easy path out of slavery to freedom. For a few of them, of course, they did indeed find their way to Canada, and uh, one of the first such communities settled uh, was called Wilberforce. Ultimately, I guess we would say not a successful community in that it really didn't live on. It, it, it died out for maybe a, a mix of reasons, and yet you say this is an important name in this whole movement and was a symbol of hope for many blacks.
1: It absolutely was, because um, when you consider that the definition of success. I, I'd like to redefine it when we talk about Wilberforce. This was absolutely the first um, black settlement to be instituted by blacks themselves for their own freedom, which I think is an important. It was it was self determination at its best, saying we are going to determine our and control our futures. We are going into Canada. We are going to establish a community um, so that. the the failure of success of Wilberforce is not whether it succeeded and lived on forever, but that it existed at all. And not only that, but that um, abolitionists throughout the world looked at Wilberforce and said, it can be done, and they were looking at it as a symbol of what blacks could do for themselves. So this was huge, symbolically, for those who desired freedom.
0: By the way, we should mention... That it was Quakers in Ohio and Indiana who stepped forward uh, with the thousands of dollars uh, necessary to purchase this land up in Canada. I mean the Quakers time and time again uh, in our history uh, can be lauded for for such generosity
1: well not even not just in in the u s and Canada but also in that British movement which worked to abolish the slave trade in Britain. Um, they also the the Quakers were also involved in that first anti-slavery movement, very strongly with with both action and and financial support. So, yes, um, the Quaker Quakers have been the backbone of this whole movement uh, from the beginning. Hmm.
0: As we read about some of these other uh, communities in Canada, uh, one of the things that, of course, is really striking is that famous names. Uh, come to the fore. I mean, names like author Harriet Beecher Stowe, for instance. Tell us why her name figures so prominently uh, in the pages of this particular chapter.
1: Well, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote that marvelous book um, called Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it was Abraham Lincoln who actually, um, upon meeting Harriet Beecher Stowe, said, so you're the, the little lady who started this civil war, (laughs) <laughs> um, he actually credited her with with instigating whites up north, which she absolutely did with publication of that book. However, when she published the book, she was also attacked um, from all directions, attacked to the point where she actually had to write a almost like a rebuttal um, and uh, called a key to uncle tom 's Cabin where she tried to prove all the all the different um, people uh, Prove about the people, about the places, about the characteristics she was giving her characters. And upon um, reading the the character of Uncle Tom, she actually suggested that it was certainly a composite character of, of blacks that she had met. Um, but one of the blacks she she suggests um, had a lot to do with her Uncle Tom character was a man that um, actually began the Dawn Institute, a formerly enslaved person who self-emancipated himself and his family, um, and his name was Josiah Henson. So here we have a character in a book by the name of Uncle Tom who actually was based in, in large part on a, a real person by the name of Josiah Henson um, who began the Dawn Institute. Um, and and this, is, this is huge. If you go into Canada today, if you go into the community of Dresden just outside of it, you could actually go visit the real Uncle Tom's Cabin, which um, is Josiah Henson's family cabin.
0: He is an extraordinary figure, isn't he? I mean, so charismatic, a man of of, of such creativity and 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 skill and and courage. I mean, what a marvelous person this is.
1: Well, um, all those attributes and more um, have to be credited to Josiah Henson. Um, He escaped with his four children, carrying two of them on his back. Um, He became very uh, instrumental in establishing this manual training school in Dawn called the British American Institute. Um, He certainly became a leader of his community. He was a Prince Hall Mason. He was a minister. He actually eventually met Queen Victoria. Um, He was certainly the prototype For a black man, the likes of which, when Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, southern slave owners almost refused to believe that such a black man could exist. And this was some of the outrage when she wrote her book, is that she was giving humanistic, um, family-loving traits to black people that heretofore had not been um, acknowledged in black folks. Hmm.
0: How many communities are we ultimately talking about uh, that are settled in Canada? And uh, and how many of them were, were ultimately thriving communities that lived on for many years?
1: Well, we're not talking about that many. We're talking about four, five, maybe six. And I mentioned those in the book. Right. Uh, there were other settlements that, that I don't go into because of time and and. Um, interest and, and other reasons, but I, settled, I, I centered this book only on the Ontario region for the most part. Um, but we have the Dawn Settlement, we have Wilberforce, but we ha- also have one of the most successful settlements, and that was the Buxton Settlement or the Elgin Association. And that one um, was based uh, again right outside, uh, about 60 miles up from Detroit. And it still exists today. The the community of North Buxton still is is there today, and the descendants are still farming the lands and living on lands that their ancestors um, lived on um, from the time of the first uh, settlement there in 1849.
0: Hmm. Jacqueline Tobin is the author of From Midnight to Dawn, The Last Tracks of the Underground Railroad, published by Anchor Books. This
1: conversation was recorded back in 2008. I'm Gregory Berg.